Stephen A., I'm the first to admit, were the Red Sox the best team in baseball, the most talented team? Were they better than the Dodgers that you and Kerry love? No, they were not. Were they better than the Cardinals? No, I don't think they were better on paper than the Cardinals. They weren't better than the Detroit Tigers, or we could go back to the Oakland A's. They just weren't a great team. But they got the hits and made the pitches at the moments because it just felt meant to be. And as their beards grew, and I love that dynamic of the beards that brought them together, unified that team, the momentum just grew and grew and grew. Good morning and welcome to episode 410 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined as always by Sam Miller. Today we continue our season preview series, getting very near to the end, uh, although we still have a week left to go. Uh, Today we do the Red Sox. So later in this episode, Nick Wheatley-Shower will be talking to Alex Spear, Red Sox beat writer for WEEI.com. Right now, we will be talking to Mark Normandon, who uh, writes about the Red Sox at OverTheMonster.com, SB Nation's Red Sox blog, and also at the main SB Nation MLB site. Hey, Mark. Hey, Ben. <laughs> um, so the, yeah, you can say hi to Sam, too. Hi, Sam. I mean, Sam didn't greet me, so I was mm, waiting. That's true. Okay, well, now everyone's said hello to everyone, except for Sam, who still hasn't said hello to Mark. Uh, I did. Oh, you did? Okay, all right, we're all set. Um, there we go. So the Red Sox were not active this winter as far as signings go relative to last winter. Is that just because they were able to fill all those holes from within without having to do anything? Is there anything that you wish they had done or think that they should still do? Yeah, I mean, uh, they could have... They could have kind of been lazy about it and come out with a team that you know, isn't as good as the one that they have now and plugged a lot of holes internally. Uh, but instead, they went out, they signed AJ Prasinski to be kind of a placeholder for a year. Uh, they brought in Burke Badenhop and Edward Mujica to upgrade the bullpen, which is kind of an underrated thing because the bullpen was great in the postseason, but it was not that good in the regular season due to injuries. So it's one area where they've kind of moved up. Uh, otherwise, you know, the places where they've kind of let things work internally makes sense. Uh, you know, seeing what Will Middlebrooks can do at third over a full season, uh, handing the reins to Xander Bogarts at short, and I don't, maybe possibly using Jackie Bradley Jr. in center field. That's kind of up in the air now with Grady Sizemore kind of using a time machine. Can you explain uh, why Przinsky is a placeholder and, and why that was, uh, you know, why they would sign a placeholder? Well, they have uh, uh, Blake Sweetheart in AA this year, or he's going to be assigned there. Uh, and he's one of the top catching prospects in baseball. But he's probably not slated to come in until two, uh, 2016 at the earliest. But other than him, they have Christian Vasquez, who's just a phenomenal defender. And even if his bat isn't completely ready, as, I mean, it hasn't been pretty much his whole minor league career. He's been pulled up by his glove through the system. Uh, you know, He's a guy you might be able to start next year. Uh, you know, maybe they re-sign David Ross or bring in someone similar, you know, another veteran on a short-term deal, and kind of see what happens with Vasquez back there. Uh, and that'll kind of determine how much playing time he gets, you know, in the next season. But it, a lot of it has to do with his development. They just didn't want to kind of block uh, anything that Vasquez might do by bringing in someone else. 
Yeah, and the reason I ask that is because um, I, for you know for years I've heard about how sort of challenging it is for a team like uh, the Yankees to um, to incorporate young players into the team because they always have to win now, and so there have been prospects who you know have been uh, you know it's they've been kind of like pretty good prospects but it's been said that well they'll probably never play for the Yankees because they um, you know the Yankees can't afford to have a guy who's um, sort of sucking the first year and, and I've heard something similar from the Angels when they talk about the challenge of of uh, transitioning young guys from the minors to the majors and the Red Sox have it seems like um, uh, this year they're in position to 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 be a very good team uh, with a number of young players and and maybe in the future too you can just sort of see how a lot of these uh, young players they have slot in in the next year or two. And this seems like a pretty important thing for a team to do if they want to win permanently without spending $300 million. So have they kind of, uh, have they cracked any sort of code when it comes to, uh, to how to do that properly? Uh, I think they've just tried to limit themselves. I mean, after the, you know, whole Crawford and Gonzalez debacle, uh, they're trying to limit themselves from spending too much on the, the incredibly high end free agents and trying to focus more on the guys, you know, cost as much. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that'll work so long as the kids continue to come up and produce and can do so at an inexpensive level. You know, if all these prospects come up and they've got a lot of them, but if they come up and a lot of them fail, you know, then they might have to go spend some money or, you know, not play as well. So for now, it looks like they found this right balance. I mean, they were really successful producing prospects for the last decade, too. They just hit kind of a... Uh, dry period and went out and spent a ton of money at the end of Theo's tenure and so as long as they kind of stay away from that they should be fine uh, you know, they're not necessarily going to win the division every every year uh, but if you know with the amount of prospects they have if half of them hit you know they're probably doing pretty well and they can kind of keep going with this plan that they got I do enjoy the the Larry Lucchino comments uh, from a couple months ago, the the passive-aggressive comparisons to the Yankees and about how the Yankees are not as concerned about reasonable spending as we are, sort of looking down his his nose at the the Yankees and their massive contracts. Um, Do you feel that that's something that can be sustained indefinitely, or is it just kind of a quirk of having a bunch of high-level guys all panning out at around the same time? I mean, it's entirely up to what you're able to bring in uh, through free agency and trades. You know, it's like with pretty much anything else. Uh, they're kind of limiting their market and avoiding some of the high-end guys that, you know, most of the teams in a league avoid because they can't afford them. And the Red Sox could afford them, but they're choosing not to. So they're just kind of cutting themselves off and trying to succeed. Uh, you know, they'll throw money around where they want to and where they can. Like, you know, Shane Victorino might have seemed like too much money uh, last winter for some teams. But the Sox just, you know, up the AAV and because they could and, you know, flexed a little financial muscle and uh, looked like they were doing the same thing with Napoli. So they're, they're going to spend money. Uh, and if they can keep finding guys like that to bring in who are still useful players who are maybe undervalued by the market or just not going to get long term deals, you know, by the nature of who they are, you know, it can work. But the market might not always give them something, but that's where the kids come in. Does the uh, does the Jackie Bradley thing the the sort of uh, attempt to 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 start him last April does that seem weird to you in retrospect I mean like looking back at it now does that seem like a really odd decision or was there sort of an internal logic to it and does it does the fact that he struggled so much uh, give you any concern or is the fact that he's still so highly regarded and had a good year at AAA uh, totally quiet any concern you might have about his ability to hit major league pitching 
Um, I didn't think starting him was a you know a bad idea. They they didn't have David Ortiz for a few weeks. They knew they were going to be without him for a few weeks. So, you know, just bringing Bradley up and seeing what he can do wasn't necessarily a bad thing, especially with his glove. You know, even if he didn't hit, he was going to help them out in some way or another. Um, I'm not really concerned about his future. Uh, he looked really susceptible to uh, fastballs slowing in, uh, specifically. Uh, he looked like he was kind of trying to jack him, just pull him right down, you know, down the line, hit like a power hitter, and he's just not that kind of guy. You know, he's a little dude. Uh, he's kind of a good all fields hitter, but you know, line drives, singles, doubles. So he seemed to work on that a little bit uh, as the year went on in the minors. So someone must have got to him and told him, and he's kind of looked like that in the spring, like he's trying to hit like he should be. So long-term concerns, not really an issue with him. What was your level of optimism when the Red Sox signed Grady Sizemore? And what is your level of optimism now? Uh, it's the same. I mean, he, I, I just assume that he could break at any point. Uh, if he's healthy, I think he can be pretty good. Uh, I think I'd, I'd written at some point that if you just think about, you know, normal aging patterns for players, and you know, if he's healthy, maybe he puts up like 110 OPS, 115 OPS, maybe. You know, it's like top of the line. Uh, but who knows if he's healthy? You know, he's healthy today. I don't know. Maybe both of his knees just fall off tomorrow. Although, as uh, you uh, noted, at a, over the monster, he ran into a wall and he survived. Yes, that was nice. He didn't explode into a thousand little Sizemorean pieces. <laughs> so uh, there are other highly touted prospects who may make some sort of an impact this year, it seems like. Uh, is there anyone in particular that you are looking forward to seeing at some point this season? I mean, I want to see Brandon Workman some more, but at the same time, I don't because that means somebody's hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's not in the rotation to start. But if, uh, you know, if someone goes gets hurt, which tends to happen being baseball and all, uh, I'd like to see him. I'm, I'm really interested to see how he does after having some exposure to major league hitters, uh, you know, after having an offseason to, you know, do all the things to preparation that people do once they realize how, how difficult that is. Uh, I really want to see how his command is, if he can keep his fastball down, because I think he's one of those guys who he's got this huge range of outcomes where he might be a mid-rotation guy. He's got the body to be, uh, you know, a 200-inning guy, but... I don't know if he's efficient enough with his current command to, you know, put those kind of pitch counts together uh, deep enough into games. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's very curious because that's a guy who could take over a spot in the rotation permanently in 2015, uh, depending on how things go. And, you know, there's a huge difference between if he's a mid-rotation guy and if he's like a five, just kind of holding a spot until, you know, Henry Owens or whoever, whomever comes up from the minors later. So there's no reason to link these two people together in a question, but they both have a sort of different kind of uncertainty about them and a different kind of uh, sort of reason to be optimistic. Uh, who will be a better hitter this year, Xander Bogarts or Daniel Nava? I mean, I guess my, my issue with Nava is that, you know, he's a great, great hitter against right-handed pitching, uh, but he really can't hit lefties. So you know, he's probably not going to play as much as Bogarts, but, you know, Bogarts being 21 and all, not quite sure what he's going to do. I think... Maybe by the end of the year, Bogarts will be a better hitter, which is probably optimistic. But, uh, you know, he adjusts really, really quickly. So we might see him kind of not really do much for the first month, just kind of get on base and not strike out a lot. And, you know, something will click in May or June and he'll just take off from there and he will be, you know, Xander Bogarts. And you are a man who likes Will Middlebrooks. Why Why uh, are you so optimistic? Uh, I think Middlebrooks, you know, we... we We've preached patience and all that for so long. We want guys to see a lot of pitches. Uh, 
But I think he's one of those hitters who's better when he's aggressive. And he kind of got away from that at the beginning of the year uh, last year. He just kind of sat and let pitchers take control of his plate appearances. And it was uh, swing mechanics kind of got all the whack. He uh, he lined up his feet together down in Pawtucket when he was demoted, you know, punitively. And uh, it helped kind of... St- Helped him spray the ball to all fields. And when he's at his best is when he's got opposite field power, and he has serious opposite field power. And he couldn't get that with the way he was standing before. So he kind of became a little more aggressive again. Uh, you know, started hitting the pitches that he wanted to hit early in counts. And there, you know, there are times where pitchers can get him up very easily because he likes to swing, and, you know, that's never going to stop. But I think he's one of those guys who, over the course of the season, it evens out. So there's going to be times where nobody can get him out, and he's just hitting homers everywhere. And, and, you know, times where he's striking out every other at-bat and looks awful. Yeah, I mean, he's hit 32 home runs in basically a full season's worth of plate appearances. So if he could not hit 230 while doing that, that would be swell. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if he hits 260, 265, 270, I think it'll be fine. Like, the on-base percentage isn't going to be there, but the league average on-base percentage isn't as high as people think it is either. So, you know, if he's got... If he's at 310 and he's got 30 homer power or thereabouts at third base, that's perfectly fine. Uh, do you expect either Lester or Ortiz to reach free agency without an extension? No. Mm-hmm. I think the Sox and Ortiz probably already worked something out, um, but just haven't announced it yet or, or waiting until um, you know the regular season starts and it can't have any effect on 2014's uh, luxury tax. And I don't know if they've come to an agreement with Lester, but you know, I think they're kind of holding off on negotiations for sort of the same reason. So um, in Alex's essay for the annual, he cites the Red Sox internal um, projection system, which thought that the Red Sox were going to win. I, I think it, I think it was 85 last year uh, and that they were very unlikely to win as, as many as they did. That that was a real long shot. Um, so, you know, knowing that, do you think that um, – uh, I mean, is that is that sort of a bad sign for the Red Sox going forward? I mean, do you feel like, I guess, this is a team that that vastly overperformed? Do you have faith, I guess, in the Red Sox projection system uh, and think that, well, that's probably what their true talent level was and they overperformed? Or do you think, well, some combination of the projection system was wrong and, you know, guys change. Maybe, uh, maybe guys just got better and they'll stay better. I mean, you guys know uh, <clears throat> projection systems are just inherently conservative anyway. You, know, you got the AL East winner with 90 games, I think, this year. And it's not the Red Sox, I might add. But, <laughs> well, I mean, it's one uh, thing to – yeah, it's sort of – it's one thing to say that, um, you know, at the extremes, you're not likely to, to get the extreme outlier performances. But, I mean, that they do try to pin it to, to peg the true talent level of a team, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, I think you had a lot of questions heading into last year that were very fair. Uh, Shane Victorino was coming off of a down year, uh, and he was heading to the AL. You've got David Ortiz is just at that point in his career where, you know, how do you really project him accurately, what he's going to do? You you don't know if he's going to just stop or if he's going to hit until he's 45. Uh, John Lackey was coming back from Tommy John surgery, you know, hadn't pitched in 18 months and was terrible the last time he did. You know, Buckholz was coming off of a down year. Lester was coming off of a down year. So I can see why things would be really conservative. But I think most of the 2013 Red Sox played up to what they're what they should be at. You know, Lester 
Lister, it's not like he overperformed uh, realistic expectations for him, or just kind of recent expectations. And, you know, Lackey was pretty much what John Lackey is like when he's healthy and isn't trying to pitch through a shredded elbow. Um, again, with Ortiz, you know, it's harder to say, oh, he's going to do that again because it was one of the greatest seasons ever for someone that age. But, uh, you know, I can see why they'd be a little on the lower end. You know, they look like a team, and they thought they were a team that would probably be competitive. And if some things went their way, you know, they'd do well. Uh, they probably overachieved uh, their expectations, but I don't think they really overachieved their talent level. I think that's a division-level winning team that they had on the field last year. And is the wariness that you felt about guys like Lackey and Buckholtz coming into last season still present, or did they satisfy your your concerns and now you, you don't have any going forward? Uh, I was probably the most optimistic person about Lackey um, besides Lackey last year. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I did a, I did a thing on how guys do coming back from Tommy John surgery when they're around his age and they've had about that much time to recover. And the results were pretty much Lackey's going to look like he did before his elbow fell apart, but you know, just an older version of that. And, I mean, that's what he looked like. I think it was so surprising to everyone because they were so full of hate for him and just thought he was terrible, like, without giving any idea to the fact that he could be good. But, you know, I think he'll be fine. As uh, He was healthy last year. He was efficient. His command was as good as it's ever been. Uh, you know, he's John Lackey. So I don't have any real concerns. Uh, Buckles, you know I love Clay Buckles. <laughs> I always have the same concerns about whether he's going to be on the mound or not. But, I mean, man, he looks like an ace when he's on it. It's just I would like it to be for more than 100 innings this year. All right, so let's segue to the predictions. How many wins are the Red Sox going to have this year? Uh, you want my conservative estimate or you want the... We want the correct estimate. Yeah. I think I think 93. You know, I don't know if that will really be enough to win the East because the East is ridiculous, but I think 93. I think they'll be one of the better teams in the American League. Noted. Okay. Acceptable. Uh, thank you for, for joining us and sharing your wisdom. Hey, anytime. Uh, you can read Mark's writing about the Red Sox at OverTheMonster.com and his writing about other teams at SBNation.com slash MLB. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark underscore Normandin. Uh, and please support our sponsor, Baseball Reference. Go to BaseballReference.com, subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted $30 subscription. And now Nick will talk to Alex Spear. Welcome to Drop Third Strike. I'm Nick Wheatley-Schaller, and I'll be interviewing beat writers, columnists, and broadcasters from around the country, getting their perspective on the teams they cover. I'm here with Alex Spear, beat writer for WEEI.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Nick. So this year, you wrote in the Baseball Prospectus Annual about the Red Sox dumping their big salary players and completely changing the complexion of their team in 2012. When that transformation was happening, did you think it would be as successful as it was, especially considering the speed of Boston's turnaround? No, I don't think that anyone in their right mind thought that the, <laughs> the, uh, thought that the Red Sox would go from a, a 69-win team in 2012 uh, to being the World Series champions with 97 regular season yeah. wins. Uh, in 2013, and that includes the Red Sox, who, you know, by their own admission during the postseason, uh, were very candid. Their decision makers at the ownership level 
uh, among others, were very candid in stating that they they thought that they they knew they were going to be better, mm-hmm. and they thought that there was uh, there was a chance that they would be in in a position to compete for a postseason berth. Yeah. But no, no one in their right mind would have uh, would have thought that the the way in which they they kind of rebuilt their roster and you know acknowledging that they still had a very good core with players like. Jacoby Ellsbury and Justin Pedroia and David Ortiz and John Lester and Clay Buckholz, but you know the the peripheral guys around them. I don't think that anyone could have thought that they could have transformed them to create uh, such a kind of juggernaut of a team that was so methodical in its uh, in its march to victories and never losing more than three games in a row last year. That that was um, it's it's fun to be surprised. So that was that was kind of fun one to cover. Yeah, they were really good all year. What do you think was the biggest factor in accelerating that turnaround? Well, I, I do think that uh, you know, as much as it's difficult to uh, as much as it's difficult to quantify, I do think that um, there was a uh, there was there was a, a really methodical nature to what they were doing, and it was purposefully methodical. And it was um, you know, this was a group of players that was very good at uh, at self diagnosing what was going wrong. Uh, at times when it was going on, and they would address it. So yeah. you wouldn't have. Oftentimes in the middle of seasons, you have kind of slumps that are born of extended periods of sloppy play, um, or something like that. You know, imprecise base running. Something. You know, just uh, teams that uh, there, there will be there will be lapses over the course of a, a season that kind of permeate rosters. Um, that's almost an inevitability, but it really didn't happen with the Red Sox last year. Yeah. Um, and I do think that there was something to be said about the the kind of just baseball-mad culture that they had inside of their clubhouse where they, they had tremendous focus on a night-in-night-out basis. Um, I, I do think that there was, uh, that there was ultimately, uh, that ultimately did have a translating effect um, in wins and losses. And then again, it, it's important to acknowledge it was also a, a really talented, really deep team such that they could kind of cycle through uh, a number of different players on the rosters on the roster, and if they if they endured injury, they had um, pretty pretty formidable backup options uh, that were ready to step in and ensure that they wouldn't just go off of the rails. Yeah, we talked about the A's this week about how sort of the new Moneyball is having that flexible roster. The Red Sox are able to do that, but just now on a bigger payroll. Yeah, certainly. I do think that the Red Sox were a team that decided that they had been at their best in you know they 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 had had their best off seasons kind of in the uh, when the, this current ownership group took over around 2000 you know the offseason between 2002 and 2003 uh, was a landmark for them when they missed out on signing their big ticket their, their big ticket guys guys like Jose Contreras uh-huh. um, and ended up signing a bunch of you know a bunch of kind of roster castoffs guys like uh, you know some of whom didn't didn't yield anything uh, such as Jeremy Giambi but others who uh, did okay for themselves, a batting titleist in, uh, in Bill Miller, um, a certain fellow named David Ortiz, who was signed to a one-year, $1.25 million contract. Um, and uh, after being after being straight-up released by the Twins so they could clear a roster spot for Jose Morbon, I believe. Um, so uh, they, they looked at that. They looked at the fact that they had been relatively unsuccessful when it came to big-ticket free agency, um, you know, the, or big-ticket contracts, the likes of Crawford, John Lackey, uh, Adrian Gonzalez certainly uh, represented uh, represented a kind of disappointment in terms of early returns, even though they liked him still. Uh, Josh Beckett was careening towards uh, being a pretty bad contract, and they said, "Look, you know, our better, uh, our, we, we've done better 
when we kind of spread the wealth and didn't just kind of bet on one guy heavily or bet on two or three guys heavily, but instead bet on 10 guys. And, you know, some of them are probably going to yield pretty good returns. And uh, that was the model that they shifted back to. So, yeah, money ball with money is a fair way of assessing it. Um, you know, taking the, uh, taking the approach of, um, you know, I had a, in the baseball prospectus essay, I cited uh, Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath as, uh, as a kind of framework or, you know, paradigm for what the Red Sox were doing. Um, and they kind of took the approach of, look, Goliath was cumbersome and he was vulnerable and he, you know, one, one stinking rock was able to, to knock that guy down and, you know, and be his, his undoing. And really that's kind of the position the Red Sox were in as of late 2012 until, uh, until the Dodgers put the paddles on Goliath and turned him into these, uh, very formidable Davids, I suppose. Do you think that if the Red Sox had had the chance to outbid the Yankees for Jacoby Ellsbury before that big transformation where they dumped all the contracts, that they'd be more aggressive in signing him despite a nine-figure price tag? Do you think that that kind of scared them away from uh, offering him a big contract? That's a fair question. Uh, I, I think that the Red Sox still would not have outbid the Yankees mm-hmm. even even in that other model um, for the simple reason that they had an in-house alternative with whom they were uh, comfortable from a long-term standpoint. I mean, you know, in 2000, you know, following the 2005 season, of course, uh, the Red Sox by that point had uh, had embraced some, you know, some bigger ticket contracts. Yet they still let, you know, had a principled approach to letting Johnny defining how much they're going to pay Johnny Damon, and they let him walk the Yankees. And this is um, a, sim- a similar scenario. The Yankees were very aggressive. They were pretty desperate. They have no, they had no one. Uh, who represented the fallback option to Ellsbury, and so they had to go really, really aggressively to repeating the uh, the kind of Kyle Crawford model contract. And um, I, I think that regardless of whether or not the Red Sox had had that transformation, uh, they weren't going to do another Crawford deal, probably even if Crawford had been really good. So with Ellsbury in the Bronx, you mentioned Jackie Bradley Jr., and then now Grady Sizemore will be competing for that center field spot. Um, to blast C Sizemore out there, but you'd imagine the Red Sox have some incentive in getting Bradley extensive experience in center at the big league level. How do you expect that battle to play out over the full year? Don't have a feel for it at yeah. all, because the number of guys who have come back from what Grady Sizemore is attempting to come yeah. back from is so slim that it's uh, very, very difficult to fathom exactly what that might look like. Um, there are guys who have been oft injured and who nonetheless made comebacks after uh, after seeing a couple of years uh, largely wiped out, but um, but you don't find guys except for World War II who had uh, position players at least who had two full years wiped out and then who come back um, and perform at a very high level. I suppose Josh Hamilton might be uh, an example, but his wasn't really injury driven. He still had um, you know he he still had this not broken down body, and you know maybe Grady Sizemore uh, after these two years functionally away from the game is in a place where uh, where he can be healthy um, but we don't know that and the Red Sox don't know that and we won't know that for a while it's still trial and error with regards to can Grady Sizemore play three straight games will he be able to play four straight games so um, I think that there's tremendous uncertainty there um, I, I think that we'll see Grady Sizemore in the big leagues at some point maybe even on opening day which yeah. uh, in its own right is a kind of remarkable accomplishment Um but how that plays out with the Jackie Bradley Jr. dynamic, I'm not sure. But I do think that at some point we'll be seeing 
uh, we'll be seeing Jackie Bradley Jr. and Brady Sizemore in the major leagues this year, perhaps concurrently, yeah. uh, meaning maybe at some point Shane Victorino, himself somewhat injury-prone, mm-hmm. uh, will be down and they'll need Bradley up. And uh, perhaps uh, it, will be with, uh, it will be with Bradley opening the year in, in the majors, with Sizemore being given more time to get his legs under him in AAA and then ultimately coming up when he shows that he's ready. Or maybe it'll be Sizemore opening the year in the major leagues and Bradley coming up. Um, at a point when the Red Sox outfield depth is challenged. Xander Bogarts is perhaps the best prospect beginning the year in a big league lineup. How good do you think he can be this year? This year, I think that he can be really good. Uh, you know, you look at the consistency of his track record going up the ladder against... Uh, uh, he's been one of the youngest guys, if not the youngest guy, at every level that he's ever played at. Um, and he's shown the ability to continue to make uh to continue to improve even as he's been advancing in his uh in his competition so um he's performed at a really high level starting as an 18 year old in full season ball uh and then you know continuing up through last year when he was i think the first guy to hit 300 400 500 um you know average obp slugging in uh in double a as a 20 year old in 15 years or something like that um, and then he excelled still in AAA, even though the performance wasn't quite the same. He was making uh, pretty significant adjustments on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've learned is that this is a guy who has tremendous aptitude, who makes adjustments to be really good in a relatively short period of time, um, You know, even as he's kind of being pushed up the ladder at a, at a pretty startling pace, culminating, of course, in... Uh, in that ridiculous performance in the postseason in which he showed um, startling maturity that suggested that, yes, he can be uh, he can be really good out of the shoot. He can be. Now, uh, that's not the same as saying, will he be? Because, as you know, like there's uh, there's ceiling and there's floor and there's probability. And, you know, and there those, those three things, how those three things sync up, you know, is uh, remains to be seen. But um, the potential is there for him to be uh, an elite, offensive shortstop uh, right away, you know, yeah. one of the best, certainly handful of offensive shortstops in the major leagues um, in his rookie year, but we should also be cautious and note that, you know, that there have been just stellar, you know, MVP caliber prospects who have, uh, who have kind of fallen on their faces in their rookie years, and, you know, there's just a lot to take in in, in that transition, so, um, you know, so by virtue of the fact that he doesn't have a lengthy big league track record, you're talking about a, a pretty sizable disparity between ceiling and floor. David Ortiz had looked like he was starting to, to decline back around 2009, but has had a decent resurgence the past few years, peaked in the World Series last year. He's 38 years old now, but he's managed to log at least 600 plate appearances in four of the last five years. How much more gas is there in that tank? Um, first of all, to call it a decent resurgence, I think, does it a grave injustice. I yeah. mean, <laughs> he's performed at a level that is comparable to anything that he did in his peak years, yeah. really. When you, I mean, if you're, I, I realize that, you know, OPS and OPS plus can be flawed metrics, um, but, you know, it, it, they're, they're kind of cool ones, right? OPS plus at the very least. Uh, and, uh, and his OPS plus last year was as good as anything he'd ever done in his career, just yeah. about. Um, that's ridiculous. And, you know, the fact that he did it at age 37, the fact that he had such a locked-in approach over the course of a full season is, I mean, it's it's kind of staggering. Um, and, uh, you know, the question is how much longer, the question, as you rightly point out, is how much longer can that keep happening? Um, answer, I don't know, because it's already defied, you know, what 
a typical aging pattern should be. That, mm. You know, he should have he shouldn't have been uh, as really outstanding. He shouldn't have been a top five hitter in the American League um, who was performing at a peak career level as a 37 year old. But he's done that, and you know, he's really smart. He figured out how to make adjustments uh, over the course of his career to continue. Uh, to sustain a very high level of, uh, of performance. And, you know, he's maintained strength and, you know, physical ability, obviously, uh, in order to be able to translate that approach into, uh, into great results. But um, I don't know. I, I have I, I struggle to figure out what we should expect uh, in terms of aging patterns from David Ortiz because he's already tossed a grenade into the typical aging patterns. Yeah, I mean, especially considering how good he was last year after having that leg injury the year before. I mean, he was almost as good, if not better. Yeah, and, you know, you're right to point out what he was doing in 2012 because yeah. he was performing outrageously <laughs> well in that season as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he came back, he was healthy, and now he actually had a healthy offseason and he's having a full spring training in contrast to a year ago when he had no spring training mm-hmm. to speak of. So Dustin Pedroia signed a very team-friendly extension last year. Eight years, $110 million, a relative pittance compared to what uh, Robinson Cano signed for this offseason. He was willing for to sign for such a large discount in order to help the team win in the future. Is there anything going on in Boston that fosters that kind of relationship with the players to make this more likely? Is there any chance that another Red Sox might make a similar move? Well, I, I think it's a it's a an interesting question. I don't know if it can be characterized as being uh, as being unique to the market or not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there have certainly been other you know to to say that it's unique. Well, you have the Evan Longorias of the world um, who have uh, who have also shown a willingness to be pretty aggressive in in saying this is where I want to spend my career and I'm going to do everything in my power. Several years removed from several years before reaching free agency uh, to approach my life through that prism. Um, but nonetheless, I, I think that it's, I, I think that it's largely a commentary on Dustin Pedroia, uh, what he values in his life, um, and, you know, suggesting that, uh, that maximizing absolutely every dollar, uh, beyond $110 million is perhaps less of a priority than ensuring that, uh, that he gets to remain in a place that he feels passionately about, um, and where he feels like he can help to bring out that he feels helps to bring out, uh, the best in his abilities. I, I think that, um, when there is a fit, a personality fit of a of a player in a city, then you know, then the incentives obviously change in terms of the willingness, the openness to uh, to pursue that kind of long term deal. Um, is there another player who we can expect to uh, to pursue such a uh, such a deal? I, uh, I guess the closest, the, the one that's being most closely monitored right now is of course John Lester, mm-hmm. um, who would be eligible for free agency after this year, but. He said very, very candidly that he wants to do what Dustin Pedroia did. He wants to spend, you know, he wants to sign his next contract. Uh, he wants to do everything he can to try to come back to the Red Sox. Um, he's not going to give away the farm. I don't think that we would see um, as, quote-unquote, extreme a discount as, uh, as what Pedroia offered um, from Lester. But nonetheless, he said, you know, very candidly, I, I am willing to be, to take a, you know, to take something less than maximum dollars uh, in order to remain with the Red Sox um, for the long haul. Now, you know, I, I think that uh, would he accept an eight-year, $110 million deal that would be wildly below full market value? I'm, I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but I, I think that 
he's made clear that there is a framework uh, that he can that he can work with, and you know, I think that the Red Sox have a pretty considerable incentive to find common ground with a guy like that. Um, down the road, I, I think that the Red Sox will be in a position. You know, it'll be interesting with a guy like Xander Bogus if he's very good, very early in his career. Uh, he's also a Scott Boris client, of course, but um, to see how things might proceed with him. But that that wouldn't be for at least um, a year and more likely two in the major leagues. So last year, obviously a very surprising year. Uh, this year, expectations will be different. Um, what, are the, what do the Red Sox need to do, do in order to avoid that regression and win another division title? Um, health, you know, is, a, mm-hmm. is an obvious one, uh, especially coming off of the uh, off of a seven month season rather than a six month one. Yeah. Uh, so keeping, you know, keeping John Lester, David Ortiz, uh, Dustin Bedroya healthy is uh, is uh, a fairly um, enormous concern. As is keeping Clay Buckles uh, yes. on a mound for more than you know for more than the 110 innings or so that he was able to deliver last year. Um, you know beyond that, uh, beyond that, I think that they need to. Well, it's this is going to be an interesting one because it's not just a you know it's not just a matter of normal regression, but you know you you might expect there to be some regression at, at various. Uh, at various positions, you know, for instance, Shane Victorino's last two years have been so extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, last year having been a great year, but you might expect there to be some, uh, some falling back to earth. Um, David Ortiz, as you point out, uh, you know, how long can he ride the magic mm-hmm. carpet? Um, but beyond that, I, I really do think that, um, the, there's, it's the, the losses of Jacoby Ellsbury and, uh, and Jared Saltzlamakia, who was great against right-handed pitching last year, yeah. and Stephen Drew, who was great against right-handed pitching last year. Jacoby Ellsbury is a left-handed hitter who was really good against right-handed pitching last year. Uh, I think that those have been um, have been just kind of swept under the carpet more than they should have, and I, I think that um, that's kind of where you start to wonder, okay, well, what what is the Red Sox offense going to be? How much of you know of what Jared Saltzmachia was in 2013? Can AJ Pruszynski be this year? And you know, there, there's substantial for a, a not insignificant drop off based on Pruszynski's very bad 20, 2013 season. Um, there is the potential for a considerable drop off in center based on um, you know the uncertainty about Jackie Bradley. Again, no known track record, even though we think he's going to be a, a long term, a very very good baseball player. Whether that happens in 2014, not sure. Um, Brady Sizemore, giant question mark, five years removed from. Five, you know, having not had a great season since 2008, um, and you know, and then Bogarts and Will Middlebrooks are someone untested, uh, in, or they they have an ill-defined track record on the left side of the infield. So, um, in order for the Red Sox to avoid a significant regression, they need some of those, you know, some of those replacements to be really, really good, um, and uh, that's going to be. Um, a kind of interesting thing to monitor over the course of uh, of the season. Um, one thing that the Red Sox did do, however, to hedge their bets a little bit, they look like, at least from a pitching standpoint, they should be better um, in terms of run prevention. Uh, their bullpen looks like it should be, uh, it should, in theory, of course, you know, and as, as the Citizens Sports pointed out, in theory, communism works, in theory. <laughs> um, but uh, they should be better in the, uh, uh, they should have a deeper bullpen that permits them um, a bit of greater latitude, and I think that their starting rotation has a chance to be better than it was last year, with uh, with the likes of a Jake Peavy replacing Ryan Dempster, yeah, um, right. and with Felix Dubron potentially poised to advance in his career, and even someone like Lester, 
Um, Lester had a really up and down season last year, and there's a chance that uh, that he can build upon what he did over the la- over the final what four months of last year when he was you know a, a standout, um, and uh, you know he could be better. But uh, so I think that the Red Sox need to have better run prevention uh, from the pitchers' mound than they had last year, and they need some of these guys with uh, whose track records makes them question marks to be outstanding. All right, well that's all I have for you, Alex. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Alex Spear, beat writer for WEEI.com. You can read Alex at WEEI.com slash Red Sox or follow him on Twitter at Alex Spear. Tune in for the listener email show tomorrow, and we'll be finishing up the final four teams next week with the Tigers, Nationals, Rays, and Dodgers.